Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Garrett. Garrett is a former KKK Klansman and Nazi. He's German and now living in the United States. Garrett turned to the world of hatred to give himself a place to belong. He has since reformed and is now converting to Judaism. He's also an inspirational speaker and soon-to-be author. Garrett, welcome. You said you joined the KKK due to bullying. Can you elaborate on that? One of my mottos, hurt people, hurt people. But in my case, it wasn't only being hurt. It was also a situation that had to do with my family history. You have to realize I was born in 1975 and my parents moved into a very small town in southern Germany. When I say small, I mean small 500 citizens. There was nothing going on. There were strangers. There were the newbies in town. They spoke a different dialect. They were the only Catholics in a town full of Protestants. And they had a drinking problem. And on top of all that, they divorced just right after I was born. So they put me into a situation where other kids wouldn't play with me because of my family's reputation. But I was like five years old. I had no idea. I thought there was something wrong with me. So I was bullied from like kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, high school. And it got worse and worse. And I just wanted to break out of that. But I wasn't cool. That, that's the problem. Because of these things in the family, I didn't have the same hobbies. The father was missing, the male role model. I didn't even know where my father was born. Being a German, it is very hard for a lot of Germans to talk about that history, especially the Holocaust. It's a burden that sits on every German's shoulders. Am I responsible even though I wasn't there? Is it my fault? Is it about shame and guilt? Or is it just about acknowledgement and being responsible for the future that it must never happen again? This is very tricky. So a lot of Germans decided not to talk about it, especially, I would say, the first and the second generation after World War II. I tried to find out where my father was from. And my mom told me it was a little town called Bergen, trying to get these answers. So I had a problem with that identity. The reason why I never could find the little town after World War II, it was renamed. My mom was adopted. You don't know who were my mom's real parents. Where was my father from? The only thing I had at the time was music. I had three siblings, much older than I, uh, eight years, 11 and 13 years older. So I was not a wanted child. I just happened. My older sister moved out when I was six. She got married. My brother moved out at the same time, went to college, left me with my other sister, Monica. And she was listening to music all day long. I loved that. That was technically all I had. My mom was a big Elvis fan. When I was eight years old, I tried to copycat Love Me Tender. So imagine Southern Germany, that weird kid, the only kid with a single mother, with a drinking problem, running around singing Love Me Tender. And that's a problem if you're not from Memphis. I was just bullied for all these things, you know? And I really was a weird kid. And it's horrible because you want to belong to something, but you just feel in the corner and everybody dislikes you. Today, looking back, it feels like they presented me with a thing that was perfect to get attention. A thing that is actually perfect for any boy who's 13 years old who wants to act up to do so. Mostly the boys told each other really bad jokes. Racist jokes, anti-Semitic jokes about the Holocaust. With every generation, it gets easier, but also more dangerous because 
people may forget that Holocaust survivors are dying and there's no witnesses anymore. So with each generation, the distance is getting bigger, the understanding might get bigger, but we also are in danger that it happens again because we don't reflect right without those witnesses. Germans have the responsibility to make sure this must never happen again. And they have to stand in the front lines. At that time, 1980s, late 80s, it was not like that. It was a taboo, making fun of all these minorities. It went for a while and the other kids went back to normal. The problem is I didn't have a normal to go back to. So I ran with those jokes a little bit longer. It became a little bit my identity. I always was a kind of a storyteller. I always loved to tell jokes. So I even wrote down all these jokes I knew as a comic. The really bad anti-Semitic Holocaust jokes, the racist jokes, but also the Hitler jokes. They were anti- I want you to tell me the jokes. It makes me always uncomfortable telling those jokes. How many Jews fit in a small car? The 1,004. The answer is two in the front, two in the back, and the other thousand in the ashtray. And even worse, that was even one of the harmless ones. So I made these jokes, I drew them down as comics. One kid stole the comic, gave it to the principal at one time. Oh yeah, I was in trouble, I knew that. Next day I was called on the intercom to go to the principal's office and then downstairs. And we sat there, and I remember very vividly how we sat there, and it was awkwardly quiet. And the principal finally said, what do you think about Hitler? What do you mean? So we started to talk. Two questions, I remember those were very well. One of the questions was, don't you know the Nazis were bad? I said, yeah. Of course, at the time, I knew the Holocaust happened. I knew the Nazis were the bad guys. I knew Hitler was the bad guy. The second question he asked me is, why are you a Nazi? I was like 13, 14. I did not understand the question. I said, dude, I'm making fun of Hitler. How can I be a Nazi? And by the way, didn't the Nazis die in 1945? That's it. I didn't know there were Nazis. I didn't know there were neo-Nazis and fascists and skinheads and the KKK. Yes, I saw the KKK on TV. I thought, I don't understand. But nobody seemed to care. You know, I felt like they put me in a box, closed the lid, and wrote on it in big letters, Nazi. And guess what? Over the time, I just started wearing the label. I didn't like it, but it gave me an identity. The side effect I believe I liked most, that I wasn't bullied anymore all of a sudden. Nobody wanted to pick a fight with a Nazi. And then I even became the bully over time. I still didn't know that there were other Nazis. Talk to me about becoming a bully. I was never in touch with many minorities when I was a child. Again, 500 citizen town, that was all German. And we had two Turkish kids in elementary school in our class. But when I became a bully, they became some of my targets. Not physically first, but very much with words, with bad words. I remember we had one girl was Polish. Another kid, she was a mixed kid. Her father was an African-American GI in Germany. He was stationed there. And the mother was a white German. One kid called her the N-word one time in class. Oh, that was a big, big deal. It was even a bigger deal than me acting up with all that Nazi stuff. It was really big. He got in really bad in trouble. And that was even hard stuff for me back then because that felt bad. But over time, she also became one of my victims. So I picked that up and called her also the N-word. A little bit later, it also became sometimes physical. Did you hit a girl? No, I was expelled from school. It was not good. What did your mother say about your views and behavior? Did she know? She was so busy fighting her demons. And I remember I had a record. The original skinheads in Great Britain, they were anti-racist. All that stuff was based on Jamaican music. And that's even black skinheads against racial prejudice right now, today. And therefore, there's a lot of skinhead music that is very soft, that has nothing to do with hatred. And I had one of those records with the lyrics on the back. 
and he confiscated the record and he called my mother and the teacher asked, do you actually know what kind of music your son is listening to? And her answer was, I don't know. I don't speak English. Do you think the music led to more hate? In my case, yes. Another kid at school told me about skinheads. He gave me a cassette tape with skinhead music. They were already about, well, Germany first, and everybody thinks we're the bad guys, but we're not. And they call us Nazis, but we're not. We're just proud Germans. I was like, they're singing about me. They don't know me, but they do know me. And I was hooked. The biggest problem was with every cassette tape I got, the music got more hateful. It radicalized my message. It gave me the tools to be more hateful. I joined a group of skinheads, and it was not a gang. They were not on drugs or anything, but we went on the weekends, went out, went drinking, and picked fights. At some point, it even led to a showdown with a, with a leader of the skinhead gang. And I remember I split up with that group. What I did at the time, I went to a college that was out of town. I just got to know other people who were like-minded. And at the time, I was 17, it was still only about provoking. And then I remember in college, there was another skinhead, and he was like, man, we have that meeting tomorrow of that one far-right party. I was a party with ties to neo-Nazis. So I said, I don't want, they're probably just old Nazis. No, no, the guy's young, the leader of that small local group. Just look at it. There's other skinheads too. So I went there. It was what he said. So I joined the party. Here, there was really ideology that was coming in. From the age of 17, 18, 19, I was a nationalist. The neo-Nazi party formed me. It shaped me. And then at the age of 19, I got myself a guitar. Look, and all of a sudden, I could play the guitar. And people would listen to me. They would even cheer. I felt valued. In the late 90s, something very important happened. The internet was becoming more and more important. And there were chat rooms. It was the IRC chats back then. And you could join chat rooms. They were called KKK or White Power. And one had the name Holocaust 2000. They told me, oh, we got the same problem here with the immigrants and with the Jews, with the black people and the politicians. They want to... They want to swap out our population and want to make it communist or whatever. I said, yeah, that sounds like here. So I became actually a white nationalist. Now those people told me I have to download a book. And the book was The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist pamphlet made up by Russian anti-Semites and anti-Zionists in 1903 to stir hate. This book, it was presented to me like the master plan, the blueprint of the Jews that want to take over the world. Imagine that I was 22, 23. I was technically still a kid. You get presented with that supervillain. And you can be the superhero who can defend your people. Don't you want to protect and fight for your people? Yeah. I never heard a single no. And it felt great. I felt like I found the holy grail. Did you actually ever wear the robe? Yes, I did. What did that feel like? When I was presented with that book, this is when I became a real full-blown anti-Semite. What in that pamphlet made you feel that way? How it was presented, whatever proof there was actually presented that it's not a conspiracy. And this was the problem. What we see here, it took me over 10 years from cracking Holocaust jokes to become a full-blown anti-Semite. I was a white nationalist, a white supremacist, a full-blown anti-Semite. Then I met a couple of people that were involved in the KKK in Germany. So you would think KKK in Germany, I did not know that. KKK existed in Germany since 1920. Now I was like, that sounded like the elite. And I was like, okay, they do it right. How can a group that claims to be Christian and praying to Jesus, like the Klan, how does this work? Some of these guys were not even Christian in that group, but the Klan claims to be Christian. I tried to wrap my head around it. So my title was Kliegel, and the white book, Don't Laugh, was called the Koran. 
And the rituals are very Freemason-like. Tell me more about the rituals. The initial ritual was often indoors and you had an outer den, you had an inner den. The applicants were waiting, blindfolded. The officer would lead them into the outer den and in the inner den and you had guards with titles. And you had like a question and answer thing that was written in the book. You had to walk with your hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you. And you had an altar in the middle with a cross and everything. And you had to walk three times around it. And every time you stop, then there's another question, answer thing. Until you're done, then you kneel down and you get initiated and knighted with a sword. And then you get the blindfolds come off. And then you see everybody with a robe and a hood. Then you are welcomed as a citizen of the Invisible Empire of the KKK. There's two things you need to understand that, that are very important why I got out. The one thing is my apartment got raided so often I can't even count it. And also my quest to wrap my head around how can we pray to a Jew? and be anti-Semitic. There's different versions of the Christian identity. Some are very, very simple. British Israelism is less hateful. There was a crack between me and those members at the time. What is it like to leave? You can leave one group, join another group, or found another group. That infighting is there anyway. It just becomes a really tricky thing once you leave and start to denounce your beliefs, or maybe go public and tell names. This is really dangerous. I retired. Did you meet your wife when you were in the KKK? No. Fortunately, I was married back then, and I met her in the movement, my ex-wife. We divorced in 2004, and my wife now, I met her here in the USA. And at the time when I met her, I was out for 11 years already. Was your ex-wife also a nationalist? She was, and maybe still is. I don't know. I'm not talking to her. After you left, I guess there would be people that could never trust you because of who you were. Right, exactly. And I knew that because that's what was taught in the movement too. You will never have a chance out there anyway because they hate us. If I asked, do you hate Nazis? Yes. See, who would I have talked to? I want to understand your hatred. It was there. Did you sing hateful songs? Oh, yes. Do you still remember the lyrics? Those bands in those movements don't always believe 100% in what they're singing. Very often it's about provoking, but also about recognition. Do you remember the lyrics? The Holocaust, the Crystal Knight, it's only a Jewish lie. I don't care about it. We have to fight the Jewish conspiracy. The only solution is mass extermination. I wrote hardcore lyrics just to be liked. You ask, where is the hateful TN? Where did that guy go? I think I was as passionate about my beliefs back then as I'm now about what I do now. What are your thoughts on George Floyd? It was, of course, murder. The justice came too late. The cops should have been arrested right then, should have been charged right then. I hate to see, especially if you go on social media, that the far right often is trying to make him look bad with the criminal history, where I say, it doesn't matter. It didn't justify what happened. So it doesn't matter. It's not the point. The point is that there's police brutality. There's a lot of racist cops. Those cops did not care for almost eight minutes. They didn't care because he was black. Did you ever think of killing a Jew? I don't even really thought about killing anybody because... The thing is, it was never that far. There was always these big talks about the race war is coming soon. The revolution is coming soon. It was exhausting because you were waking up with this fear. Don't you think it could happen now? I'm concerned about it. You have this boogaloo movement. You have a lot of white militias. I remember I had my Facebook profile and I had the t-shirt on Black Lives Matter and everybody of these white conservative friends jumped on me and called me a racist against white people. 
Do you have a gun? Nope. I never owned one. I actually don't want to. Have you ever hurt anyone? Yeah. We had fist fights. We were fighting with people. Have you ever beat up a Jew? I didn't know any Jews. For 10 years in Germany, I did not talk about my past. A question for you. Why do you think I didn't talk about my past? Because you wanted to create a new chapter. Two reasons. One reason was fear of rejection. And I didn't want to explain myself because I couldn't explain myself. And the second reason was shame, toxic shame. I want to know what the conversations were like with your mother. We had a great conversation talking about the past and she was sober at the time already. And I told her, look, I just want you to know it's a lot that I was not a father figure. And I said, don't get me wrong. I don't want to blame you. I just want to make you understand that this was a problem for me. That doesn't mean it's your fault. She started to understand that and said she never realized that. Also, my father died when I was eight. He had lung cancer. He didn't live with us. He moved out when I was one or something. And I remember just maybe four or five times when I visited him. Nobody ever sat down with me and said, hey, your dad is dying. He will be gone. I remember the funeral. I couldn't see him because it's not like here in the U.S. that you have a viewing. It's usually in a separate room. I remember I wanted to see him. I wasn't allowed. He was just gone. And then I told her, we're both reflecting on our past and have to come to peace, you know? Look, mom, I'm not blaming you because you were fighting your demons at the time and you tried the best you could. Did anybody you know? in your family have racist views? Nope. That's interesting, actually. My great-grandfather, he was, in 1914, he was an army person. In World War II, it was annexed by Nazi Germany. He fought in the German Wehrmacht. My oldest sister told me my great-grandfather died two months before I was born. She always told me the stories about him, that he told all his war stories, and that Hitler was a good man. Hmm. Nobody wanted to listen to that. What is your sister going to think of you being a Jew? Are you allowed to be one of those? That's a good question. I haven't talked about the topic with my family in Germany yet. I don't know. I have to accept it. Do you think they'll be pretty surprised? Possibly. They know I'm in love with the Jewish community. It's a non-topic. Like, to my older sister, I'm not talking anyway. We're not talking. With my brother, neither. It has a lot to do with the past. They can't forgive. Are they ashamed of you? My oldest sister is, for sure. When in 2012, I got outed by the German media, it was really big and really bad, and I was not in control of my outing. The media got much better. I had They praised me so much for what I do now. They make me look so good, she still doesn't want to see it. Have you gotten rid of all your KKK Nazi stuff? A lot of that already gave away in 2000. I gave all that stuff away. Not to compare the two, but it's kind of like embarrassing pictures from college. I didn't want them to know it and I didn't want to talk about it. Now I do. And I had to reflect on that and work on that first. But it helped me. Reflecting helped me tell my story. That makes other people understand the hows, the whys, and maybe also what can we do if we see something happening like that to others. This is what I'm trying to teach. There's two things. Before somebody gets into something, we need to look if somebody's in a box. I was in Chicago for speaking, and I was speaking in a couple of synagogues. And one of them, I was supposed to, to do my whole story. And the rabbi told a story to the small group, 20 people, before I was speaking, because after that I said, okay, I don't need to speak anymore. You just explained it. Right after all these anti-Semitic attacks in New York that happened earlier this year, in the wake of all these anti-Semitic attacks in the same week and the week before, I was like, oh my God, it's something anti-Semitic happened here. We need to protect ourselves what happened. So fortunately, the culprit could be found and identified. And the cops told her, look, we found who it was. What do you want to do? Do you want to press charges? And the young woman said, no. So what do you want to do? She said, I want to sit down and talk to him. She sat down with that man who broke that mezuzah and realized that he actually had no idea what he was doing. He just knew when he breaks it that he hurts her personally. He knew it was Jewish, but he wanted to hurt her in general. He apologized. 
and bought her a new mezuzah. And the problem is if nobody opens these boxes and pulls those people out and put them back on track, guess who pulls them out of those boxes? The guys in the white hoods and the swastikas. One last question. You said that you want to become Jewish. Can you tell me more about that? When I started connecting with the Jewish community two years ago, number one, so many nice people. The whole ethical part of Judaism, like the giving of loving and kindness. What else became clear when I went to a synagogue the first time on Erev Yom Kippur? What day could have been better for me to reflect on my past, to ask for forgiveness for my sins, and I was welcomed. Everybody knew about me. It didn't matter. That compassion, the most compassion I received was from the Jewish community, the community I vilified the most. My German name is Hebrew. It's Achim. I love the Tikkun Olam message that you want to heal the world now. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. This is a great interview. I really appreciate you being so open and letting me ask all of my curious questions. Thank you for having me. Grandpa, what did you think? He actually shows quite a bit of learning and wisdom. He is expressing that a lot of times people join certain groups because they are rejected and humiliated. These are the type of people that these type of organizations can prey on. You hit on it perfectly, and something that I even I'm learning from this experience is that people who are rejected don't want to be rejected. They need to be accepted. And they are going to take any type of standard until they are accepted. It's illogical for someone to be attacking Jews and yet to be praying to someone that had Jewish beliefs. So this man had a very logical mind. He clearly has done things that were wrong. It's quite ironic that he ended up in Shul on Yom Kippur to try to ask for forgiveness for his sins as well as he was looking to have a higher degree of acceptance, not only from God, but the people that took him in and tried to understand him and forgive him were the actual people that he was condemning. It was the Jewish people. I don't think that he's being a hypocrite. I think what he has really been able to find out is how both sides of this coin of his life has been, where he's been able to show that he's been picked on, had an identity problem, able to be part of some type of fascist system, but he always had a logical mind. He's still trying to comprehend the answers. I hope that he can be successful and be able to teach others that once you educate yourself, that you'll find out that some of these primitive instincts that people get that rile people up is the wrong message. What did you think when I told you I was going to interview somebody who was in the KKK? Initially, I thought it was crazy and dangerous. But the truth of the matter is, is that that's also showing a sign of putting your guard up, maybe being a little ignorant myself, thinking that how can you possibly talk to someone that just hates you or could kill you or trick you? So the fact is, is that those same primitive instincts was my defense mechanism. I feel a lot, lot better after hearing him speak so well that I believe he's for real. He made another very interesting comment is that when you have eyewitnesses to tragedies or eyewitnesses obstructions that have been done to people, how many Jewish survivors of the Holocaust are left alive? And when they're all gone, are we going to forget? Racism and discrimination go back centuries. Minority stories are paved with slavery, blood, and injustice. Hate crimes occur every day all around the world, and it's up to every one of us to do something to affect change. 
Manscaped. A well-groomed man is so attractive, don't you think? Buy any custom-engineered grooming care from manscaped.com and receive your 20% off using the code BCD. Better call daddy. Don't forget to subscribe. Add Better Call Daddy podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.